Well, good morning. The few, the elect, only, only the, only the uh, elect persevere to the end. And so here you are. We started out uh, doing church history at the beginning of the year, and there was like 6,000 people, and then now the cream rises to the top. So good to see you. We are almost done with our series on church history. We only have uh, through the end of November, and then we will, uh, we will be done. So let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will talk about this figure that you probably don't know much about, and uh, we will get into the lesson. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for today, and we thank you that you have used men who are both uh, broken and sinful to uh, help advance your church. I pray that you would uh, help us have discernment as we study this figure who is uh, in some senses a good guy and in some senses a bad guy. And so we, uh, we thank you for the life of, uh, of this figure and just ask that you would be with us during this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today we are going over one of our key figures. So we've been studying church history throughout the year. And a lot of times we'll study a movement or we'll study a time period, right? So we'll study the First Great Awakening or we'll study the Middle Ages. But throughout this series, we've paused and kind of slowed down on a few particular figures that we have called key figures or major players, the kind of guys whose lives are so influential that you have to stop and talk about them. This includes guys like Martin Luther. This includes guys like St. Augustine. This includes guys like John Calvin, etc. Well, today we are doing our last key figure of the series, and it is a guy by the name of Karl Barth. First thing to know is it's not Karl Barth. You don't pronounce the T-H. Uh, it is Karl Barth. You don't say St. Augustine. That's a type of grass. That's a place in Florida. You say St. Augustine, you don't say Karl Barth, you say Karl Barth. You don't say Friedrich Nietzsche, you say Friedrich Nietzsche. You don't say uh, George Berkeley, it's George Barkley. You don't say Rene Descartes, it's Rene Descartes, right? So we want to make sure that we get this terminology correct, but today we're going to be doing Karl Barth. Now, who is Karl Barth? Karl Barth is the most influential, not only Protestant theologian, but the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Okay, that's kind of a big deal. To be the most influential theologian of all the 1900s is this guy, this guy, Karl Barth. Pope Pius XII said of Karl Barth that he was, quote, the greatest theologian since St. Thomas Aquinas. That is a glowing review. That is five out of five stars. When the Pope says, here's the premier Catholic theologian, Thomas Aquinas, and this is the greatest guy since them, this is coming from the Pope. Now, Bart would actually have hated to be uh, compared to uh, Aquinas, and we'll see why in a second. He, there's something about Aquinas' theology he despises, but that's who it is. So we're going to be studying this figure today, Karl Bart. Who is he? Why is he important? Where is he good? Where is he bad? So we're going to talk a little bit about him. Now, this is a guy that if you've not done theology at the academic level, you probably don't know much about him. That's not true with all of our other key figures. You probably knew something about Martin Luther before we talked about Luther right? Or you probably knew something about John Calvin, even if he's linked to Calvinism, before we studied Calvin. You probably knew something about Augustine before we did Augustine. This is a guy that you probably don't know as much about, and uh, this is a guy that is a bit different than the other key figures we've been studying. So as we've studied these other major players, most of them have been good guys, and then they have a few problems. This guy you have to take with a bit more caution. Liberals don't think he's liberal enough, conservatives don't think he's conservative enough. So I'll let you decide if he is friend or foe or some, uh, some combination of those. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Zach. Luther had his problems. Yes, of course. 
you know, Augustine had his problems. Yes, of course. Augustine one time wrote in the City of God about how a woman had been raped and how that was, in a sense, God's grace to her because she couldn't walk around in the pride of her virginity anymore. It humbled her, you see. So Augustine has problems. Luther has problems. He writes on the Jews and their lies, etc. These guys have problems. You're going to see with Bart, though, that his problems are not these personal, side, weird issues. Rather, a few of these problems are at the core of his theology. So we'll see that as we go. Bart was hated by liberals such as Adolf von Harnack, who we talked about uh, in our Enemies of the Faith series, and Rudolf Bultmann. But he was also hated by conservatives such as Cornelius Van Til, Carl Henry, and Billy Graham. So you see how interesting this figure is. On the one hand, the Pope is like, he's the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas. And then Billy Graham is like, I hate this guy. So he's a polarizing figure. So we will see who this guy is. We always use a uh, bunch of different resources in studying and preparing for these lessons. I will today, though, be relying pretty heavily on a good biography by Mark Golley when it comes to uh, Karl Barth, if this figure is interesting to you. One more thing by way of introduction. Uh, Al Mohler. Anybody know who Al Mohler is? Okay. All right. Well, a few people. A few people really love him. I saw like some excited hands, right? Al Mohler is the president of Southern Seminary. Southern Seminary is the largest Protestant seminary in the United States, and it's a good seminary. I mean, the, the top, when you think of top five seminaries that I'd recommend for people to go to, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Talbot School of Theology, Southern Seminary, et cetera, Westminster, these are, these are good schools. <clears throat> he did his Ph.D. dissertation on the evangelical reception of Karl Barth. This is a figure that some evangelicals say he's on our side. And other evangelicals say he's not on our side. And so uh, Moeller did his dissertation on evangelicals and how we have received the theology of Karl Barth. So interesting stuff, at least to me. Before we talk about who he is, we have to remind ourselves what theological liberalism is. What Barth is most known for is for being somebody to push against the, the biblical higher criticism and theological liberalism of the 1900s. That's the main thing he's going to be known for. So let's remind ourselves, we did a lesson on theological liberalism. You should listen to it. I highly recommend it. I did it. Uh, we did a lesson on uh, enemies of the faith where we talked about a lot of these theological liberals, guys like Adolf von Harnack and uh, Rudolf Boltmann and some of these others. I recommend that you listen to it. Let me give you a reminder of what, uh, what this is. Liberal theology, by the way, liberal theology, theological liberalism, don't think of that as uh, the, being politically liberal. Okay, this, We're talking about theology. Now, the two go together. I've never met a theological liberal that's a political conservative, but we're just talking about theological liberalism. Liberal theology replaces the traditional authority of Christianity, the Bible, creeds, confessions, etc., with the enlightenment ideals of human rationality and experience. It seeks to remove all the supernatural parts of Christianity, what I would consider the good stuff, and simply keep the things which would be acceptable to human reason and experience, i.e., an internal feeling of religion and an emphasis on social work. So if you think back to our theological liberalism lecture, here is what the theological liberals are doing. They are saying, we live in modern times. We can't believe in miracles. We can't believe in resurrection. We can't believe in all this weird ancient mythology in the Bible. But we don't want to completely jettison Christianity. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to do a type of Christianity that will be acceptable to modern, modern people. We'll strip away all the mythology. We'll strip away all the magic. We'll strip away all the God intervening in history. And we'll just focus on the essence of Christianity, which they would say is this internal feeling of dependence upon the divine and love for others. 
Okay? So that's Christianity for us as Orthodox believers is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that we can avoid the wrath of God. That stands at the center of the story. For a theological liberal, what stands at the center of the story is this general feeling of dependence upon God. You're a creature after all. You need some higher power. And we should love each other and be involved in social work. Okay? That is theological liberalism. And that is what Bart is going to respond to only after completely embracing it. He's going to start out as a theological liberal, and he's going to see that it doesn't work, and he's going to shift. All right, let's get into this guy. Look at this happy Swiss German theologian. Doesn't he look like, isn't he very grandfatherly? Doesn't he look like he could teach you how to fish or something? Okay, who's Karl Barth? He was born on May 10th, 1886 in Basel, Switzerland. As a kid, he was interested in fighting and in the military. I think, by the way, that the best pastors and theologians are guys who like to fight Guys who like to argue, guys who, who want a good brawl. He got into fistfights all the time and even joined a type of street gang as a little kid. Here is a quote from his diary at the age of 12. Today I did a good deal of bashing up and got bashed up by plenty of people myself. There he is, Carl, the fighter. Okay, He is a fighter. He loved classical music, especially Mozart, and he was actually supposed to be a pretty good violin player. Just before his confirmation and his 16th birthday, he was resolved to become a theologian. So he knows that at the age of uh, 15... Right before he turned 16, I'm going to become a theologian. I don't know how many of your kids do that. If you ask your kids, what do you want to be? They're going to say police officer or firefighter or actuary or something like that. Kids never say that. But they usually don't say theologian, right? They usually don't say theologian. So he studied at the universities of Bern and Berlin where Schleiermacher used to teach. Who is Schleiermacher? If you know, raise your hand and I will allow you to yell it out. What was it? Uh, well, he's a bad theologian. He's a good theologian that has bad conclusions. He's not dumb. Who is he, though? What, what, is, he, what is he known for? Yes, the father of theological liberalism. The guy that starts the whole theological liberalism thing is F.D.E. Schleiermacher. And this guy is studying at the school that this guy helped found. Okay? <clears throat> he studied under one of the most popular liberal theologians, the guy we talked about two weeks ago, Adolf von Harnack. Again, stay away from all Germans named Adolf, just as a general, uh, general helpful rule. He hated the conservative theology of Tübingen, where he also studied, and he got his biggest helping of liberalism from the University of Marburg. So he is studying to become a theologian, and he is going across to all these universities in Germany, and he's studying with all these theological liberals. Big-time names, okay? Big-time names. And so if there's anybody that you would expect to become just a total liberal, it would have been Bart. But sometimes what you see in history is that somebody's student ends up being their greatest critic, right? So who is Plato's student? Aristotle. And Aristotle's philosophy is the opposite of Plato's. And so even though he studied with Plato for all these years, he's going to come to an opposite conclusion. Bart's going to do something similar with theological liberalism. He was ordained in 1908, and he took his first pastorate in Geneva in 1909. He actually started uh, when he would teach theology. He was a professor of Reformed theology, and here he is in Geneva, kind of sitting in the seat of Calvin, if you want to say it that way. Now, he did not have a good marriage. Okay, we could have put this under the flaws as well. He married his fiancée, Nellie, that's her name, in 1913. It was an arranged marriage and an unhappy one. The original love of his life had died in her 20s, and Bart visited her grave for years. Bart eventually got an assistant that helped him tremendously. Her name was Charlotte von Kirschbaum. Kirschbaum in German means cherry tree. Okay, so we got old Charlotte from Cherry Tree here, who's this uh, young, attractive secretary that's going to kind of come onto the scene here. <clears throat> but he called her Lolo. He had a nickname for her. However, Bart loved her and had at least an emotional affair and if not, an actual affair. Now, this is what's interesting. Scholars of Bart 
debate each other over whether or not he ever had an affair. Now, it looks shady. Ladies, if your husband has a secretary who's young, who's attractive, that he has a nickname for, and her name is something like Cherry or Cinnamon or Sparkle, you should be super concerned, okay? You should be super concerned. And so that's who this, uh, this lady is here. So scholars debate. Those that love Bart are like, nope, it was just an emotional thing, and that was it. Other scholars are like, nope, they had to have had an affair. That's a picture right there of uh, Carl Bart when he's younger, and that is not his wife. That is not his wife, Nellie. That is Lolo. That is uh, Charlotte there. And so this will be kind of a, a scandal on the, uh, the Bart name of uh, how, how much into that relationship he got with his, uh, his assistant. Bart suffered from depression. By the way, that's a constant thing you'll see in theology. A lot of guys study with deep depression. If you're someone who loves Christ and you study with depression, you are in good company. He also was always almost smoking tobacco out of a pipe. In fact, he kept going to the same doctor because the doctor wouldn't keep bugging him about smoking. Right? He didn't want to go to doctors that would say anything about it, so the doctor would check everything else and just wouldn't say anything about his constant smoking, but he always had a pipe. Every, you, see, you see him in a lot of pictures with a pipe. He's always studying with a pipe, so that's kind of his, uh, he's like Popeye. That's kind of his jam. In his first pastorate, he pushed all the liberal stuff, experience, feelings, social justice, etc. He also had socialist leanings originally. He was called Comrade Pastor by the Workers' Party, where he was. However, he eventually grew tired of liberal theology because he saw that it didn't work and it didn't glorify God. He also grew disillusioned at his former professors because they blindly supported Germany as it entered World War I and II. Why is Germany picking so many fights around the time of World War I and World War II? Here's why. They are overcompensating is what Germany is doing. They are swinging the pendulum. Germany was not as advanced as France or England throughout most of modern history. It was just a collection of feudal duchies until the late 1800s. So what's going to happen is you're going to see the pendulum swing, and then everybody's about Germany. All the great theologians, all the great philosophers, they're all going to come out of Germany. It's all going to be about Germany. We love Germany, and it's going to lead to a type of nationalism that's going to lead to both world wars. And Bart saw that coming. He thought these people are too eager to just jump into this war just to promote Germany, and so that will become a concern of his, and we'll see how that plays out during uh, World War II. Now, here's something interesting. If you didn't think that theological liberalism was wrong biblically, which it is, you might also see that it just doesn't work, and that's something fascinating that Bart sees. He pushes all that stuff, and he sees this doesn't glorify God, it glorifies man, and it doesn't produce any life change. What you need is you need to have the spirit. You need to be regenerated. You need to have your life changed by God. That will transform you. Just telling you to generally acknowledge a supreme being and be nice to people, that's not going to produce any type of change. So one of the things interesting about theological liberalism is you just let it play itself out and nothing changes. Everybody in your church is the same as everybody outside of your church. So that's an interesting thing that Bart is going to see. At this time, theological liberalism was very optimistic, and many theological liberals were post-millennial. Now, let me clarify that. There is a conservative good type of post-millennialism that people like Jonathan Edwards hold, but most theological liberals end up being post-millennial because they have this huge optimism for what humanity can do. Traditional post-millennialism says God will bring about a Christian society. Liberal post-millennialism says we will bring in the kingdom of God through our social action, through helping the poor, through human advancement. So at the beginning of the 1900s, you have a lot of post-millennials because they're saying things are getting better. Things are getting better worldwide. We have advances in medicine. We have advances in technology. Our education's better. And then you get two world wars and the Holocaust and all these kind of things, and they start to say, hmm, perhaps we can't cure our own ills, right? However, World War I, that's going to put it into that, 
The Spanish flu. What was the most recent pandemic before COVID-19? It was the Spanish flu, okay? A hundred years ago. So about so hundred years ago, there's the Spanish flu. Over two years, how many people have died from COVID worldwide? About five million. How many people died in the Spanish flu? Fifty to hundred million. So the most clo- the closest pandemic that we've had historically killed way more people, and you hadn't even heard about it until COVID. Interesting. Okay. And economic hardships. In 1923, it cost 200 billion German marks to buy a loaf of bread. This caused many people to see that humanity would not bring about our own well-being. This laid the ground for needing God's help. In 1919, Bart's commentary on Romans was written, but it was his second edition in 1921 that put him on the map. Listen to this. Bart's first thing that he's going to publish that's really going to blow everyone away, he's published other things, but this is going to be the, the main thing, is his commentary on Romans. Against the background of theological liberalism, it emphasized divine freedom and radical human depravity. The New Testament theologian F.F. F. Bruce says that Bart's Roman commentary, quote, fell like a bombshell on the playground of the theologians. That is going to be what's going to start his career, and he's going to have another work that's going to be much more famous than that called Church Dogmatics. We'll see in just a second. Over his career, he was a professor at the University of Göttingen, the University of Münster, the University of Bonn, and the University of Basel. His greatest work was the Massive Church Dogmatics. It is a 14-volume systematic theology that is twice as long as Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologia. Very few people have read all of Bart. It is massive. It is technical. At one place, he has a footnote that goes on for pages and pages and pages and pages. A footnote, okay? So it is this massive work that's twice as long as Aquinas's Summa Theologia, which is already way too long, okay? But that's going to be the big thing that he is uh, known for. You can buy little uh, cut-down versions of it if you want to, to read some Bart. In reestablishing orthodoxy and a focus on what God has done in Christ, he pushed back against the man-centered, squishy focus of liberal theology and reasserted the supremacy of God. This return to orthodoxy, but with several new shifts, was called neo-orthodoxy. So Bart is going to be known, uh, along with a guy named Bruner and some others, as what are called neo-orthodox theologians. What that means is they are responding to theological liberalism, so they're called orthodox, but they're not holding some of the traditional views of the church, so it's neo-orthodox. They're, they're taking a new spin on certain things that we will see here in a minute. He died on December 9th. 1968 at the age of 82. And guys, his influence is massive, okay? If you don't understand how big his influence, you don't even have to know what he taught. You just need to know he's kind of a big deal. He, like Ron Burgundy, is sort of a big deal. You see him here on stamps. Can you imagine getting a letter in the mail and you're like, who's this old guy here? And it's Carl Bart. He was on the uh, 1962 cover of Time Magazine. Think about that. How many times does a theologian get to be on the cover of Time Magazine? Right? It's always somebody else. It's, it's, it's always a, an entertainer or a politician. But as a theologian got to be on the cover of Time magazine, he traveled in the United States. You see there a picture with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he traveled in the United States, taught, although uh, most of his career and stuff uh, started out obviously in the uh, Switzerland and uh, Germany area. All right, now let's talk about Karl Barth and the Nazis. Now, I'm not going to say much about the Nazis here because Tim is going to be doing an entire lesson on the German church during World War II. So if you like that kind of stuff, that's going to be fascinating. What would it have been like to be a Christian in Nazi Germany during World War II? We're going to have a whole lesson on that that Tim is going to do. But uh, you can't, so I'm not going to get too much into Christians and Nazism. I have to mention this briefly, though, because we have to talk about Bart because one of the things he's going to be known for is for uh, trying to uh, subvert 
the Nazis. So, a few things. First of all, Bart hated National Socialism because he believed it was a form of idolatry. Okay? Because he believed it was a form of idolatry. Nazism is interesting because you have this nationalistic element. That's National Socialism is what, what this party is. You have a nationalistic element, but you also have a socialistic element. So you have just us, our country, Germany should own the world, but you also have cancel culture, buying, you know, getting rid of people's guns, limiting freedom of speech. You have both. And so it's this weird amalgamation uh, that's going on in Germany at this time. And Bart thought that it amounted to a type of idolatry. When you are saluting and you're giving oaths to and you're just bowing before sacred Germany, he thought, this is not Christian. There's something that's really disturbing about this. Bart had guts. I told you he was a fighter. Listen to this. In fact, he wrote a pamphlet against the German church's support of the Nazis and had 37,000 copies printed before that publication was outlawed. In fact, a copy was even sent to Adolf Hitler himself, courtesy of Karl Barth. Now, when people are getting killed for their religious views, for you to write a critique of the Fuhrer and send it to him, signed Karl Barth, you've got guts, okay? Because you could wake up, not at all, because you'll be dead. So that's him. In 1933, a group of 20,000 German Christians gathered in Berlin where pro-Nazi speakers stated that no blacks or Jews should be allowed in the church and that the Old Testament should be done away with. Why do you think they wanted the Old Testament done away with? Because all the Jewish stuff, right? The Jewish, if you hate Judaism, Jesus is going to be a big problem for you because I don't know if you know his lineage, but it is super Jewish, okay? They also stated that we should not focus on Christ crucified, but on Christ militant and king. When you focus on Christ, you can talk about him being lowly and gentle. You can talk about him being crucified. Okay? This is something that uh, guys like a Luther will talk about. Uh, that there's the theologian of glory and there's the theologian of the cross, where God turns the world upside down. What the Nazis want to do, though, is they don't want to focus on Christ losing. They don't want to focus on Christ getting defeated. They don't want to focus on Christ suffering. They want to focus on Christ militant, Christ strong, right? Because they're trying to promote an ideology which is strength, right? And then the Nazis want best of the best. They are elitist. They don't want the weak and the poor and the lowly. They want the best of the best. So they say, we're not going to have Jews in the church, not going to have blacks in the church. We're not going to focus on Christ as weak and suffering. We're just going to focus on him as king. And they denounce Bart by name, Okay. So you're at this conference. There's all these Nazi stuff going on. They're doing a bunch of Nazi stuff, and there's a lot of swastikas, and they're like, here's our view. And by the way, watch out for this Karl Barth fellow. He's not on our team. That's a good thing, okay? May, may, may you be denounced by the Nazis. Okay, 600,000 to 700,000 of the evangelical youth organization were transferred to become part of the Hitler Youth. Look at that picture, okay? A lot of blonde boys there. A lot of blonde boys there. You see what's going to happen is a large section of the church will cave to this political party and not realize how evil that it is. And it will lead to these terrible things. And so what you're going to do is you're going to get this split between Christians that think that you can support the Nazis and Christians that think that you can't. And a large section of the evangelical youth, which is this group that's meant to be like a, a big youth organization, like, you know, uh, what's the one, Young Life or something like that now shifts over to become part of the Nazi youth. Groups of Christians that opposed Hitler and his policies were called the Confessing Church. Okay, if you hear that term in church history, that refers to Christians that opposed Hitler. Bart was one of three authors influential in forming what's called the Barman Declaration in 1934, which denounced the German church's acceptance of national socialism. The Barman Declaration contains six articles that all begin with a quote from Scripture, 
an affirmation of what that means, and then a denouncement of views held by the German Christian group. Those are the ones that support the Nazis. So you got the German Christians supporting the Nazis and the Confessing Church, those opposing the Nazis. Listen to this quote from the Barman Declaration. We reject the false doctrine that the church could have permission to hand over the form of its message and of its order to whatever itself might wish or to the visi- vis- I can't say the word. Vis- vis- yep. Uh, I can't, it's one of those words like uh, rural that some people have trouble saying. Vicissitudes. Of the prevailing ideological, I said it, and political convictions of the day. We reject the false doctrine that apart from this ministry, the church could and could have permission to give itself, listen, or allow itself to be given special leaders. The German word it uses there is Führer. Okay, just to make it very uh, poignant. Vested with ruling authority, we reject the false doctrine that beyond its special commission, the church could, should and could take on the nature, task, and dignity which belong to the state and thus become itself an organ of the state. What they're saying is the state doesn't get to tell us as the church what to say. We as the church get to say what the Bible says. We don't have to hear what the state says. We are not an organ of the state. In 1934, Bart was fired because he would not give an unqualified oath to Hitler. All German professors were required to give an oath to Hitler. But Bart added a qualification that he could only be loyal to the Fuhrer where it did not conflict with his responsibilities as an evangelical Christian. So in Germany, if you're a professor, because by the way, if you control the schools, you control everything. That's always, if you control education, because education is about truth, if you control that, you can control the world. And Hitler knows this. His famous quote of give me the schools and you can have everything else, he realizes how important the universities are. And so he has all German professors have to swear a personal oath to Hitler. And not a qualified oath. They have to say, I follow you, Hitler. You're the best, sweet mustache, whatever you say goes. Okay, something like that. Uh, the, yeah, that's my German translation. It's a little different. What Bart's going to do, though, is, is he's still going to give this oath, but he's going to give a qualified oath. Now, before you fault him for that, that's probably what most people would do. If you have an evil governmental leader and they say, submit to me, what you would say as a Christian is, well, Romans 13 says that I need to submit to you, but not in everything. Not when you tell me to do what's sinful. And so Bart says, I will follow Hitler as long as it doesn't conflict with my Christianity. Which basically means you can't follow Hitler very much, right? So he is fired for that. Uh, He's fired for giving that qualified oath. He moved to Switzerland and enlisted. This made him really mad, by the way. He moved to Switzerland, enlisted in the army at the age of 54 in his willingness to fight the Nazis if need be. Okay? That is Karl Barth and his relationship there with the Nazis. Tim will talk a little bit more about Barth when we have our lesson on the German church in World War II. Okay. Let's talk about good things about Bart, and then we'll talk about bad things about Bart, okay? Good things first. He is the one, probably more than any other figure in the 1900s, who helped save Christian theology from the liberals. His intellectual firepower was so much higher than his critics that he changed the course of theological history. That's what he's known for. He's known for the guy that grows up in theological liberalism, rejects it, and he's going to have a theology that is not man-centered. Liberal theology is man-centered. It's about you and feelings and society. It, it, It reverses God's command. Love God first. That's the highest command, which involves correct doctrine and theology. Then, after you've done that, love others as yourself. What liberal theology does is it switches it. It says the second command is most important. Humans, the, verti- the horizontal relationship is more important. We'll deal with the vertical later. And so Bart's going to go back to, and this is why he's called neo-orthodox, he's going to go back to a view that sees the vertical as more important first. He rejected natural theology. What is natural theology? This is why he wouldn't like being compared to, uh, to Thomas Aquinas. Who knows what natural theology is? Don't say it's theology that's natural. What does that mean? 
Anybody? Anybody know? I have failed you. Okay, here's what natural theology is. Natural theology is that you can learn some things about God apart from revelation. Special revelation, what we have in Scripture, is the sufficient and uh, primary way that we know about God. Period. End of sentence. However, God has also revealed himself through things in nature. Paul says this in Romans 1, that even the pagan can look out to nature to realize there is a creator, to realize that we have sinned against him, right? Even the person who, uh, a thief who steals from another thief still realizes he's stealing, right? There there are these things that we can know about God from nature. Thomas Aquinas is going to be a big proponent of natural theology. He's going to come up with all these proofs for God's existence, all these things that we can see are or are not moral, etc. Bart hates that. For Bart, God is so wholly other. Humanity is so far below God that unless God reveals anything to mankind, we can't know anything about him. Bart hates, hates, hates natural theology. Humans are so depraved and God is so far above humanity. The focus of Christian theology must be on God's revelation of himself in Christ and in the Bible. Put a little, uh, little qualifier, an asterisk there. We'll come back to that. Listen to this quote. We have found in the Bible a new world. God, God's sovereignty, God's glory, God's incomprehensible love, not the history of man, but the history of God, not the virtues of men, but the virtues of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Bart had a buddy named Emil Bruner, another neo-Orthodox theologian, and Bruner had written this long, very popular article about how we can know some things about God from nature, that we can know some things through natural theology, and so Bart wrote, in response to Bruner, an article, and the title was one word, nine with an exclamation point. No in German. With an, that's his article in response to Brunner. He does not think that you can know things about God from natural theology. He thought that pietism led to legalism and therefore didn't properly understand God's grace. He was very concerned. In Germany, you have what's called a pietist tradition where the focus becomes less on doctrine, less on the otherness of God, and more on uh, piety, more on these acts that you can do to try to make yourself holier. And so uh, Bart is going to say a few things there. Blessed are those who know they are not pious. They are the people of God because they know they are not. Once when he was told he had strong faith, he said, So you allow me good faith. I have never conceded myself good faith. And when once the day comes when I have to appear before my Lord, then I will not come with my deeds, with the volumes of my dogmatics and the basket on my back. All the angels there would have to laugh. But then I shall also not say, I have always meant well. I had good faith. No, I will only say one thing. Lord, be merciful to me. A poor sinner, okay? He doesn't like anything that makes you seem like you, you get closer to God like you've done it. Something where you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. Man is a deplorable beggar when it comes to Bart's theology. Whereas liberalism focused on God's eminence, his closeness, your feelings, your experience with God, etc. He focused on God's absolute transcendence. There is nothing that puts you in contact with God. Every thought you have about God is the thought of a creature and therefore wrong. God is wholly other. As one commentator puts it, I love this quote, you don't say God by saying man with a loud voice. You don't say God by saying man with a loud voice. Here's what Bart's trying to get you to realize. When you think of God, you have a tendency to think of an old man up on the clouds with a beard who says kazow and does things on earth, don't you? You're thinking of Zeus when you do that, as Spinoza would say. You're not thinking of the God of the Bible. Think of something that's a trinity. It boggles the mind. Think of infinity. Go ahead. Just go ahead and think of infinity. Are you there? Are you there yet? Are you there yet? Even when we say that God is love, that's not the same kind of love I have. I love tacos. I love my wife. Right? I love sleeping in. And also God loves me. Those are super different. And so what he's saying, because God is a being who's infinite, 
all of your thoughts to God are wrong to some degree. Realize that, and that should, that should cause this profound mystery and this profound worship in your heart, okay? He focused on the importance of God revealing himself. Now, the primary way that God reveals himself is in Christ, in the incarnation. In Christ, the unknowable God becomes knowable. So don't think the same way that we have a tendency to think that God's also revealed himself in his word directly. We're going to see that's not the view that Bart holds. He does love the Bible, but he has a very different spin on it being God's revelation. The main thing is God revealing himself in Christ. Okay? <clears throat> Humans have no way of knowing God or communicating with God, so God must take the initiative to reveal himself to man. Man is the beggar, and God is the one who must provide our theological food. All of this is due to God's radical grace. I'll give you two more Bart quotes here. Grace is the incomprehensible fact that God is pleased with a man and that a man can rejoice in God. Only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. Grace is the gift of Christ who exposes the gulf which separates God and man and by exposing it, bridges it. Or as I just mentioned, in Jesus, God is known as the unknown God. He believed, now listen to this. This will blow you away if you understand what he's saying. He believed that we idolize religion over God. That what most Christians do is not really encounter the living God. We just focus on religion. We oftentimes don't want to actually be confronted with a holy God and have to rely on him. So we substitute religion for God. We try to be nicer. We attend church. We talk about theology. Not God himself, but theology. We try to be moral. We practice spiritual disciplines. But we do all of this as an idol instead of worshiping the one true God. So instead of when you have a problem running to God himself... If you run to some act of religion, you're worshiping that act and not God. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying when you want to get close to God, don't pray. You should pray. If you want to get close to God, you should read your Bible. He's not saying don't practice spiritual disciplines. He's saying realize that those are a means to an end. The end, though, is God himself. We have a tendency to focus on religion and Christianity and morality and not on the triune God. I'll give you an example. Let's think of a Christmas song that is about Jesus. What's a good Christmas song that's about Jesus? Silent Night. Yeah, Jingle Bells. That's a good one. Yeah, Silent Night. Let's do O Come Emmanuel. That's one that we sing here at Parkway. O Come Emmanuel is a song about Jesus, and it's focused on Jesus. It's focused on the coming of the Messiah. That's what the song is focused on. That is a Christmas song focused on Christ. Now, think of this Christmas song. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. That song is not about Jesus, it's about Christmas. It's a Christmas song that's topic is Christmas. It doesn't answer, well, what is Christmas about? Well, it's about Jesus. That's what Bart thinks that we are doing in our theology. We, in a sense, are singing. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. We're focused on the religion. We're focused on Christianity. We're not actually focused on Christ, okay? He believed in the importance of being part of the church with its warts and all. Now, that should be an encouragement to you that you should belong to some church, because if he can find a church to belong to during World War II, then he believes that it's important to be a part of some type of church. We must not, because we are fully aware of the eternal opposition between the gospel and the church, hold ourselves aloof from the church or break up its solidarity. But rather, participating in its responsibility and sharing the guilt of its inevitable future, we should accept it and cling to it. Another good thing, he loved John Calvin and thought that he was an absolutely brilliant theologian. Bart was originally hired as a professor to teach Reformed theology. Okay, Now, let's talk about some bad things about Bart. But first, let's look at this picture. Doesn't he look like the little old man from the Disney movie Up? <laughs> he does, is the answer. Yes? There's Bart. Look, look how cute. Look how grandfatherly. Man, those thick eyebrows and those big glasses. Those do it. Bad things about Bart. Okay, so there's the bad. So, so we've given the good stuff. He's 
he's, uh, you know, against Hitler. That's a good thing. He has some good breakthroughs in theology. He helps fight against theological liberalism. All that seems good. You're going to see the places, though, that he's off in just a second are really off. You ready? A few things. He, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we'll talk more about Bonhoeffer in the Nazi lecture, but he, along with Bonhoeffer, a student of Barth, or a student who said that Barth was his greatest influence, denied the inerrancy of Scripture. Barth said that the Bible contains scientific, historical, listen to this, and even theological errors. Right? So not only does he think the Bible has historical and scientific errors, theological errors. Well, the Bible got this thing wrong. Here's really what God is like. Okay? More like Karl Barth. Right? So that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem, his denial of the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, again, he's a very high view of Scripture, but it's not the traditional view of Scripture. We'll see why here with this point number two. This is really the thing you need to understand to understand neo-orthodoxy and to understand Barth's view of the Bible. So listen to this. This is very important. He believed the Bible itself was not the Word of God. The Bible is a record of humans' interaction with God, with God's primary Word, which is Christ. But, quote, it's God's word insofar as God lets it be his word as we hear it. Let me say that again. It's God's word insofar as God lets it be his word as we hear it. Here's what Bart means by that. Let me make it simple for you. The traditional Protestant view of Scripture is that it itself is God's revelation. It's not just a record of revelation. It's not just uh, something that detailed when God revealed himself to humanity, although that's in there too. It itself is God's revelation. When you are reading the Bible, you are reading the very revelation of God. When you are reading the Bible, you are hearing God speak, right? If you want to hear God speak, as it's been said, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. That is God's word. That is God's revelation. The Bible itself is God's revelation. That's not the case for Bart. For Bart, revelation is what happens when you're reading Scripture and God encounters you in Christ. So if you've ever had somebody that says, as they're reading the Bible, God, I just want an encounter with you. They're being Bardian. You have an encounter with God when you read the Bible. But what they're wanting is they're saying something other than the Bible. I want this personal direct revelation from you, God. That will be you really talking to me. That is uh, neo-orthodoxy. That is this idea that God's, the Bible's not God's revelation. God uses the Bible to reveal himself to mankind. But that revelation for him is what happened in Christ. The Bible is a record of humans' interaction with God actually revealing himself to humans throughout history. Okay? For Bart, the Bible is not the word of God. Rather, God's word is what the Holy Spirit is confronting you with when you read the Bible. This was not the traditional view of Scripture. The word of God is not statements or doctrine, but an event, the event of Christ. Sometimes you'll hear people that kind of separate out knowing and following Jesus from knowing and following the Bible. They're being Bardian. Okay? They don't realize they're doing it. You can't follow Jesus without the Bible. You don't know who he is. I love Jesus. Which Jesus? I love Jesus. What is he like? I love Jesus. Who is he? You don't know apart from Scripture. <clears throat> Carl Henry, in summarizing Bart's view, and this is a pretty good summary, said, the Bible is the word of God, but only at certain instants when God lets the Bible speak to us. Some scholars think that this critique of Bart is unfair because Bart speaks very highly of Scripture elsewhere. In fact, listen to this. He quotes the Bible more than any other figure in church history, over 15,000 times. And he sought to rescue the Bible from the liberals. Regardless, this definition, along with the denial of inerrancy, should bother Christians. Okay, so keep that in mind. What he means by revelation is not what you and I mean. When I say the Bible is God's revelation, I mean it is, it is itself the very revelation of who God is. He's going to say that it only is that at certain moments when God opens your eyes at those things. God is, God's revelation is something that he uses the Bible to do it, but it, the Bible itself is not God's revelation. 
His view of God sometimes borders on changing traditional categories. Sometimes borders on God changing. Uh, Bart does hold to a doctrine of the Trinity. He loves the Trinity, although some scholars have critiqued him for uh, erring on the side of what's called social Trinitarianism. What makes God one is relationship. That's not the historic view. What makes God one is essence. But anyway, in traditional theology, God is immovable, impassable, and simple, but Bart disagrees with some of those categories. He also thinks that God is not bound by his word. Bart hates anything that seems to put God in a box, even a box of Scripture's own making. Bart doesn't want you to put God in a box because he doesn't want you to be able to get your hands around him because God is so much better than you and so much bigger than you, he's uncomfortable when you start putting limits around what God can and can't do. Now listen to this next one. If you want to know the two biggest problems with Bart, it's going to be his view of Scripture and it's going to be his view of election. Now, he's a professor of Reformed theology. He would say that he super agrees with election. Election is the gospel. One of the reasons we're passionate about Reformed theology here is because if you don't believe in election, you don't understand God's grace to the same level as somebody who does. God's grace is not that you did your best or even you did a good decision to choose God. It's that you were running away, trying to go to hell, and God showed up and saved you and you had nothing to do with it. Okay, That is important. Bart is going to redefine the definition of election. Election in traditional Protestant theology is, though everyone is sinful, so no one will choose Christ. We're, there's no, none who seeks for God, no, not one. We're all, if God does nothing, all humans go to hell, period. So what God does in his grace is he selects to save some, but listen, he does not select to save all. Esau he hates, but Jacob he loves, okay? That's the traditional view. Bart is going to change that. Listen to this. His view of election is not that God selects individuals to either save or damn before creation, but rather Christ is both the electing God and the categorical elected man. This means that Christ is really the only one who is damned by suffering on the cross, experiencing the wrath, and really the only one who is elected. Since Christ is truly human, all humans are elect in Christ. Here's his view. Bart's a dialectical theologian. He likes to go back and forth with arguments, yes and no. That's why he titles things nine, for example. God, Jesus has heard God's no on the cross, but he has heard God's yes through being resurrected. So in his mind, what, what, maybe here's a clearer way to say it. It's not for Bart that God selects to save some individuals and doesn't select others. Rather, God elects someone to benefit others. God elects Israel, not just for Israel, but so that it will be a blessing to the nation. God elects Christ, not just to benefit Christ, but so that he will be a blessing to all. So there is election in Bart's theology. It's that Christ is the one who's elected, the God-man, who takes together God and man. That, be, that, uh, that Jesus is going to be the one that reconciles God and man. God has damned humanity in Christ, and God has saved humanity in Christ. But this is going to lead to universalism. Okay? If Christ is representative of all humans, because he shares our nature, and we all are humans, and he has been elected by God, we therefore will all be elect. Now, Bart would fight against that. He would say, I don't hold that. But it is logically where his view leads. So, this leads to universalism. Bart denied that he was a universalist, but it's where his theology necessarily leads. Listen, everyone is saved in Bart's theology because Christ has saved mankind as a whole. If salvation is up to you knowing or putting your faith in Christ, then you had to do something to get it, thus making it a work. Okay, listen to this. I think this is, this is fascinating. You shouldn't agree with Bart here, but you should see some of the brilliance of what he's saying. He is trying to get salvation completely in God's hands and completely out of yours, and this is one way to do it. 
if God has saved Christ and therefore all humanity, because Christ is truly human and we're all human, then that means salvation is really by God. You don't even have to have the faith. You don't even have to have the repentance. Zach, is salvation by faith? Is salvation by works? No. Now go repent and believe and walk in holiness the rest of your life. That sounds like a work. So Bart's going to say, no, God so loves humanity that he's going to save humanity. If you think back to the Puritan theologian, John Owen, who's going to be this big proponent of uh, limited atonement, what Owen would say is this. Jesus cannot be intending to die for the sins of the whole world or else everyone is saved. If you think Jesus atoned for everyone's sin on the cross, then nobody goes to hell. So rather, he has to intend to die for the elect. He has to atone for the sins of the elect. And Bart's going to say, well, hold on a second. Why can't he intend to save everyone in Christ? Why can't he have paid for all of our sins on the cross? That's not impossible. God's wrath would still have been satisfied. God would still have been just. Here's something that Bart would point out to you that you need to hear, and this is difficult. God could have saved everyone and still been just by crucifying Christ on the cross, and he didn't do it. Literally, nobody had to go to hell, and God would have gotten the same amount of glory, and he would have been just as just, and yet he didn't do it. You, as an evangelical, will have to wrestle with that. You're telling me that God would have gotten the same amount of glory and people didn't have to go to pain, in pain forever? And not that God's unjust. It's not just that he lets them out of hell. He would have punished Christ for them, so he would have been righteous. You have to wrestle with that. That is a difficulty of our faith that you are going to have to uh, go back and forth on. Next, he denied that we can know things about God through nature or through philosophy, and hence what Romans 1 claims. He believed the Bible was the sole way of knowing God, mainly as you encounter the uh, incarnate Christ, rather than the primary and sufficient way of knowing God. So, So keep that in mind. When we say sola scriptura, Scripture alone. We're not saying throw out all other knowledge. There are good things you can learn about reality and truth from philosophy. There are good things you can learn about reality and truth from science. There are good things you can learn about reality and truth from business. All truth is God's truth. The Bible, though, is going to be the primary and sufficient, meaning it's the only thing you need. It's the only thing that God's going to hold you accountable for. If you knew nothing else but the Bible, you have everything that God is going to require you to do and to believe. That's the, that's the traditional view. Barth, though, is going to say, we don't even learn things about God from nature, which is not what Romans teaches. We don't learn about God from things in philosophy. These are all mankind's attempts to reach up to God. Barth hates that. God reaches down to you. That's what the incarnation is. We don't reach up to God. Rather, God reaches down to us. So, why is Barth important? Just as a recap, and then we'll have uh, a few minutes for questions. First of all, He saved orthodoxy from the devastating effects of liberalism. Now, notice that he doesn't go back to the traditional view. That that would have been the way that I would have fought it. Liberal theology is wrong, and then I would use academics to show, here's really what the Bible's teaching, here's really what the culture is, here's the essence of Christianity, it's not about social work, it's about Christ, etc. That's not what Bart's going to do. He is going to push against liberalism, but he's going to adapt his theology in a way that will be more received. He's going to make some pretty new changes But he did help fight against theological liberalism. He rescued the Bible from religious relativism. Bart loves the Bible. He doesn't hold the same view of inerrancy, but he loves the Bible. He would tell his students, exegesis, exegesis, exegesis. Interpret scripture. You don't try to make it mean what you want. Let God speak to you. He quotes the Bible more than any other figure in church history, mainly because his work is so long. There's just so many places to, uh, to quote it. But he did rescue the Bible from religious relativism. Rediscovered the gospel and made it look beautiful. So in this sense, 
Bart is very much of a, a romantic. I don't mean that with romanticism. I mean with like somebody who, you know, has a zeal and a zest for life, a real joie de vivre. And so he wants the gospel to look beautiful. He wants you to see how radically depraved you are. He wants you to see how much love God has for you. He wants you to see how crazy it is that in Christ God reconciles the world to himself. He wants to make the gospel look beautiful and he wants to make Christ look beautiful. He downplayed humanity and exalted God, which is a good thing. Remember, theological liberalism does the opposite. Mankind cannot solve our own ills. We cannot legislate it. We cannot just try to be nicer. That's not going to fix it. We have to have the cancer of sin cut out of us, and we have to have new life breathed into us. And so he will downplay humanity and what mankind can do. Humans are not great for Bart. Humans are great for the liberals. We're very advanced. We're very, very, uh, you know, we have iPhones. We're very fancy. They wouldn't say iPhones. They lived before that. But you get it. Bart's going to say, no, we are low. God is big. And then lastly, he put Christ at the center of theology. There's a tendency to ask this question. What is Christianity primarily about? What is the primary theme that runs throughout the Bible? And theologians debate each other on this. Is that primary theme the kingdom of God? Is that primary theme monotheism? Is that primary theme uh, enacting a just society? Is that primary theme love? What is the primary theme of the Bible? And Bart's answer is very simple. It's Christ and him crucified. That is that in the incarnation, God becomes man while remaining God. That's it. That's the focus. That's why we're called Christians and not just, you know, doesn't curse a lot or whatever other things we do. We're called Christians because Christ is the center of theology. So let's pray, and then uh, the Reverend Jeff Ashley will come up and help us answer some questions. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you even for figures like Bart, as uh, broken as he is. Would you help us take some of the good stuff he said, but leave some of the bad stuff behind? We pray that we might have nuance in a culture that hates nuance. Might we be able to say this is good and this is bad, not wholly embracing or wholly rejecting things. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.